Summer, 1990. A teenage boy in trouble. An evil that only comes out at night. Only a straight-to-VHS movie can save him. From A. Kale, the author of, Beware the Night. Bad Dreams. A thrilling horror novel, now available on Amazon. Rated PG-13, for some thematic elements and mild violence. You are listening to the Dark Fantastic Podcast. Welcome to this new episode of the Dark Fantastic Podcast. I'm your host, AK. My guest for this episode is a veteran writer and music journalist with experience in print and radio. His specialty is liner note essays, of which he's written over 300 for music CD reissues of classic albums and compilations, several of which he produced. His work was commissioned by the companies Rhino, Universal, Sony Legacy, Blue Note, Motown, RCA BMG, The Right Stuff, EMI, among many other labels. He joins me to talk about music history, the uselessness of musical boundaries, and the future of liner notes in the age of streaming. Now, a conversation with A. Scott Galloway. Uh, I came across your writings and, uh, and, and it reminded me of the, you know, the idea or the concept of liner notes because you write a lot about liner notes and you write a lot of liner notes. So I just rediscovered my, uh, my love of liner no- notes through reading your work again. Because, uh, you know, this day and age, everything is just streaming. And uh, the idea of liner notes is just, uh, I don't know if it's obsolete, but the idea of music history and opening your CD box, like I used to do when I was a kid, just reading about your, you know, how passionate you are about music history and about liner notes just reignited my own passion you know, about liner notes and music history, because as I said, I just love the blues. And I guess if someone likes the blues, they must be interested in music history to a large extent. So that's how I came across your work. And that's why I'm so excited to have this chance to talk to you. Well, I'm, I'm very honored and flattered that, uh, you know, you've checked out some of my work and, and that you're interested in liner notes, because like you said, uh, in this day and age, while uh, there are still, you know, I'm still writing liner notes for for different projects. Uh, most of them are either jazz records or they are reissues or compilations of uh, music, you know, from the funk and soul era. So it's not like, you know, you can pick up a brand new uh, Rihanna album or something and there'll be liner notes in them, although there might be. I think any, an artist on that level that I recently saw their CD was Beyonce, records number one right now. And uh, I think it has lyrics and it has credits and a lot of photographs, but no liner notes. Now, usually with new records, 
an artist does not do liner notes. Liner notes are usually more reserved for, like I said, compilations or CD reissues. But back in the in the day, you know, in, in the 60s and 50s and stuff like that, liner notes were crucial, particularly to jazz records, because the audience for jazz uh, was really hungry to know a lot about the artists as they didn't always travel to all the different cities. Um, jazz magazines, you either had to have a subscription or live in a city that, you know, had them on the newsstand where you could actually get some information about them. And then in the pop records, since, you know, a lot of liner notes were, were just kind of toss off, throw away things that either were just flowery prose about the artist or some disc jockey or somebody just kind of writing something quick and to the point and um, saying something that basically was showing that they liked the artist or that they were recommending the artist to other people. But yeah, in-depth in liner notes in this day and age uh, are still being done. But like I said, basically for anthology projects uh, or for jazz projects, ones I've been doing the most of lately and reissues. So let's backtrack a little bit um, because you, you write about so many kinds of music. So I'm just really interested to know how did you fall in love with music to start with? I think I came out of the womb loving music and uh, my parents were both very much into music. They were not musicians or singers, but they had a, a wonderful record collection that I just pounced on. And uh, I was, I've always loved music. I am a drummer. I was always beating on things when I was a kid and couldn't wait to finally get my own drums and, and, and be able to play, which I still do to this day. But I, I think the, the, the thing that's most important to share is that I came from a household where my parents really appreciated music. They had a great record collection. I got knee deep into it just from an, a, a pure enjoyment standpoint. And, uh, and then because uh, I was so interested in music, of course, I started reading whatever liner notes there were for, for these albums, you know, as I got old enough and, and I was a pretty, you know, smart kid and uh, reading uh, was something I was able to do at a pretty young age, let's say like from five, six years old on, you know, I mean, I was really able to read things and uh, know what I was reading. So, you know, I mean, again, uh, Motown records that we had, they really didn't have many liner notes. I think, one of the Diana Ross and Supreme's greatest kids had something that uh, Ed Sullivan wrote for them uh, that was just basically gushing about how wonderful they were and they were on his show and this, that, and the other. But the one liner note essay I always point to, uh, it actually wasn't an essay, it was a very short piece that really impacted me was uh, one that the songwriters, Alan and Marilyn Bergman wrote for Sergio. Joe Mendez in Brazil 66's third album, which was titled Look Around. And that liner note basically put you in the studio and, and, and created a, a picture of what Sergio was like, you know, at the piano 
conducting, the fact of the clock being on the wall and time was of the essence, but time disappeared when the music started because you're just floating on the music. It was a very evocative, poetic approach to liner notes. And I never forgot that because at the same time I was reading my father's Blue Note jazz records, liner notes. And a lot of those tended to be very technical. They wanted to start talking about, you know, rhythmic time signatures and keys and the instrumentalists. And, and you know, uh, some of it could be kind of clinical and kind of, you know, uh, you know, it was very erudite and, and, and very wonderful in its own way. And I just started seeing that there was a lot of different ways that liner notes could be approached. And uh, over the years, I kind of had my own ideas about, you know, what liner notes should be like. Yeah, I was gonna jump into that about your approach to writing liner notes. But I just want to just tell you a very quick story, because it, you know, it, it, it's, uh, it's, it's connected or related to what we're talking about about the nature of, of the flexible nature of liner notes, because uh, you know my first exposure to to liner notes was uh, the uh, the Prince uh, hits collection that came came out in '93. Of course, I didn't buy it in '93. I was way too young, but I think I bought it maybe in the late '90s or something, and. It was this, you know, CD box set, and it came out just when Prince, you know, had had this disagreement, and uh, he changed his name. So I was, you know, I was just opening the the box, and uh, the sleeve, the CD sleeve, you know, had had this couple of pages, or maybe three or four pages, written by someone called Alan Leeds. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think he's the brother of Eric Leeds, you know, a member of, of Prince's band. And, uh, you know, I used to ignore these couple of pages because I was so fascinated by music and I'm, I'm sort of an amateur musician myself. So I wanted to get to know, you know, who produced which uh, track and who many, how many, you know, musicians played on it, how many instruments played on each track. So... I didn't really read the the couple of pages, you know, to, to that, that you know that began this like sleeve. But later on, maybe a year later, you know, when I wore this, you know, this collection out, I I just, you know, I I think I had nothing better to do, and I started reading these liner notes. And this is, you know, building on what you said, your experience was, was uh, you know, with, with reading liner notes, you know, for the very first time. Mm-hmm. You know, it was just, it was basically, uh, I don't know if, if, if Alan Leeds was, ju- was just trying to apologize for the record company or trying to be honest, but it was basically the story of the genius of Prince. And at the same time that Prince might be, you know, overreacting a bit to his, you know, to, to his contractual obligations mm-hmm. or so mm-hmm. on. So it was just this fascinating essay, you know, to, you know the first time ever I, I actually was reading a piece of music journalism. I think I was in my early teens and it opened up, you know, my eyes to the idea of that because I'm basically a filmmaker. That's what that's that's the industry I work in. So it opened my eyes to the idea that, wow, there is also this kind of 
music journalism or music history, like the books I read about film history, there, there is also these interesting stories and, you know, b- behind the scenes stuff about music. Yeah, well, Alan Leeds, first of all, is a historical music figure. I mean, he used to, you know, work with James Brown. He worked closely with Prince on the road in a managerial context. And uh, he's also a very excellent writer uh, and a musician himself. So he was the perfect person to write that piece uh, for Prince Kids because he had an intimate relationship with Prince. He saw how Prince created music and how he worked with the people around him. Um, you know, and again, he had he had a historical figure to compare Prince to, which was James Brown and and, and I know he's worked with some other folks as well. So that was a that that was a very good piece. In fact, it's probably one of the only reasons that I kept my Prince hits uh, collection because of those liner notes. I had all of the original Prince albums. Um, those actually on the Prince hits collection, I think, were the single mixes, the single versions of all those tunes. And then there was, um, I guess, somewhere between four and six new pieces of music. Uh, that were really nice, like Pink Cashmere and uh, some other stuff. Uh, I can't remember right now, but yeah, you know, and, and that's one of the most beautiful things about liner notes. It's like if you have a, a, a project in this day and age, again, like you said earlier, streaming is everything. And a lot of folks are not even dealing with physical product. But when you, but when it comes to whether somebody's going to actually hold on to their, um, their albums or their CDs or whatever, a really good liner note essay is a very good reason to hold on to that project. Even if you have all the music in your hard drive or your Spotify or, or whatever, great liner notes are one of the best reasons to hold on to a project. It's like, you know, your record collection becomes a library in that sense when you have projects that, you know, somebody took time to write really good liner notes for. So, uh, yeah, I applaud you. you had a, that's a wonderful entry into liner notes for, for a young person, that Alan Leeds essay on print. And, um, and just in, in as far as print stuff, today is also the uh, 40th anniversary of the release of the Vanity Six album, which, you know, was Prince's second group that he introduced to the world after the time, uh, which was another just yet another of the many levels of genius of Prince, you know, creating other groups that were outlets for his songwriting and his ideas about what groups could and should be. Yeah, we we, we can talk about Prince, you know, for days, but oh, yeah. um, <laughs> 17 days at least. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's that's amazing. Uh, I want to talk about your liner notes because your liner notes are usually more detailed and much more heavily researched than maybe what's considered the industry industry standard, at least maybe in the past couple of decades or something, because uh, like in, in, uh, in the Rap Declares War collection and the mini Rippleton collection, uh, you... It's your essays are basically they are like many many you know music history books. So how do you decide 
on which projects to choose and and once you decided that how do you decide on with which you know information to include and and not include because i imagine that you know getting a sense of of how you work and and seeing your work you 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 must have a, a ton of information about each project or each subject before you decide on writing the final essay. So how do you choose your projects and how do you whittle down the, the information to, to fit uh, the size of the assignment? Well, first of all, thank you for, for that compliment. When I started writing liner notes, um, I think the, the key word for me is passion. Um, you know, somebody came to me with the idea that, or they had this project, Rapid Clear's War. That's actually my very, very first uh, liner note essay. And it, they actually brought it to someone else that I was working with, but he said that he wasn't really able or worthy of doing it. And he recommended me. That man's name is Bill Speed. And so it was Rhino Avenue Records. Avenue Records is, was a label that was specifically uh, for the reissue of music or by or inspired by the band War. And um, so I got the chance to do that project. And, and what was so interesting about that particular project and for that being the project for me to start, you know, like that was the very first one, was because it required me to A, know a whole lot about War's music and B, to know a whole lot about each one of those rap artists that sampled the war music in their hit hip hop. So I was working at a magazine at the time called Urban Network. And so, uh, you know, all the information, all the music of what was going on at that time, which was the early 90s, was all around me. I mean, I had all the, I could call people, I could, I had bios, I had the actual original albums all around me to pull and do research from. And then Eric Burden and War, I mean, that was uh, an album. The album was actually called Eric Burden Declares War. It was an album very early in my life. I think it came out in 1970. I was about six years old. That album had been in my household since it came out. I knew it intimately. And from that point, that was their debut album. And, you know, War is one of my favorite bands. If you live in Southern California at that time and you were a lover of music, you were going to be in the war. You know, they were amazing. And uh, so I just took my passion of, uh, of what I knew about the hip hop records and what I loved about War and all of their music and funneled all of that into my essay. So there were, you know, there was what I already knew and then there was what I had to research for that project. And it was in depth. And I'm so glad that they came to me or that somehow that project found its way to me because as you also said, um, and I really thank you for, for saying it, is that, you know, my work tends to go above and beyond um, what the average person would do for a liner note essay. I loved war so much. I really dug in and I, I wanted to make sure that people understood about war and how great their songs were and why they were being sampled. And yet I also wanted to give respect to each one of the, the hip hop groups 
um, that were sampling it by, by letting people know some information about them, where they were from, what strand of hip hop they came from, you know, and talk about the craft of how they or their producers used the sample from the war music. So it was, it was in depth. And um, I guess because I did such an in-depth job on that particular project, you know, I started getting offers to do all kinds of, of different work. And the last thing I'll say is that I have to also credit my very dear friend, David Nathan, uh, who had already been doing liner notes uh, for, you know, a lot of projects, mostly female R&B artists. You know, we had a conversation. He came to visit me for the very first time. And um, we were talking about liner notes and music and the fact that Rhino had just acquired the Atlantic Records catalog. And I was very happy for him and what he was doing. And I just very, very, very casually mentioned to him that if he found out that Rhino was going to do something with the average white band catalog, that I would really like to be involved. A, because I love the average white band, and B, because there was another writer that was assigned uh, the two volumes of Chic, The Best of Chic. And when I read those liner notes, I was appalled because the guy didn't talk to Nile Rogers or Bernard Edwards or Tony Thompson or Lucy or anybody for those notes. He wrote some very basic off the top of his head kind of stuff and very obvious kinds of things to say, oh, Good Times went to number one on the chart and it was the song of the summer and just very much um, did not do the band justice in the liner notes arena. And, and the reason that that was tragic is because as you, I'm sure well know, almost everyone, a lot of the members or whatever in that group are now deceased, you know? So it's like, that brings me to the point of how important liner notes are and how important it is, at least to me, to involve the people that were involved in creating the music because you never know from one day to the next whether they're going to still be here to share their thoughts, you know, their, their ideas, their anecdotes, their creative process, their contributions to a piece of work. You know, I mean, now you only have Nile Rogers and she, Bernard's gone, Tony Thompson's gone, Raymond Jones is gone. Um, the ladies are still here, but you know, again, most people would never really think to go and talk to them and, and get the full perspective of everybody in the band. So that's what I did when, you know, fate, like right after I told David Nathan that I would like to do Average White Band if they were doing something, I got a phone call a week later and I got the assignment to work on Average White Band. It's called Picking Up the Pieces, the Best of the Average White Band. And they asked me to help compile it. And when I did my liner note essay, I interviewed several members of the band, not just one. And then when that project did very well and they started reissuing all of the average white band's albums on CD, I got everybody. I think for the first two liner notes, I mean, for the best of liner notes, I only talked to Alan Gorey, uh, no, Alan Gorey, Roger Ball, the saxophonist, and Ani McIntyre, the guitar player, because they were still currently in the average white band. 
But when I started doing the albums, I reached out to not only those three again, but I also talked to drummer Steve Maroney, singer Hamish Stewart, and saxophonist Malcolm Molly Duncan. I wanted everybody's input, not just one person, and be satisfied with that. So I, um, I think, I hope I answered your question. You had a two-part question. The other part of your question was, well, you asked me, how do I choose my projects? Most of the projects come to me. Uh, people come to me and they say, Scott, would you like to write the essay for this particular project? And nine times out of 10, I say yes. Every once in a while, I have turned down a project because I didn't feel I was the right person for it. But most of the time, I, uh, you know, I accept. And then the other part of your question was, how do I whittle down the information? Uh, that's a two-prong two answer, and I'm gonna keep it short. Of course, for any project that I'm given, there is a word count that is expected. You know, I, you know, they only have a certain amount of pages, a whole, a certain amount of space. Therefore, what I, you know, how in depth I'm able to go on the essay is determined by what my word count is, and uh, it's also uh, determined by you know how much how much information I'm able to gather. If I'm doing a project that's about a particular album, uh, I try to be as all in as possible because usually there's not going to be very many other opportunities for a liner note essay to be written about a specific album. Uh, but if I'm doing something on a greatest hits or an anthology or whatever that's covering a, a wide span of time and several singles and several albums, then it just becomes about, you know, addressing one of the songs and, you know, addressing a little bit about the band's history and the arc of their creativity. I hope I covered everything. Yeah, yeah, thank you. That was, yeah, that was... Uh... It gave me, um, you know, a lot to think about and yeah, just thinking about it and the contribution, you know, of, because later on, again, through, uh, you know, I never came across, uh, I have, I think the, the best of Chic, I think, but I don't think I ever read the liner notes or, or the version I had actually had liner notes, but you know, if you love a band, I think enough, you tend to research it on your own. We can talk about Cheek, you know, forever, you know, the, the contributions, they, they worked, you know, every individual member worked with, uh, at least the guys worked with just, you know, everybody from, you know, David Bowie to, you know, Brian Ferry, Robert Palmer, uh, they produced so many, you know, people and worked with so many people. They, they basically, you know, I was just reading, just, uh, you know, I'm sorry if I'm taking a bit of your time because just this is an amazing conversation. Um, no, I'm, I'm just, fine. I'm, I'm enjoying the conversation as well. So, yeah, take your time. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I was reading, I think, an interview, I think last year um, with Robert Smith of The Cure. Mm -hmm. And he was saying that uh, I can't remember the, uh, the track a track on on their on their album uh, kiss me kiss me kiss me kiss me mm -hmm. it came out in 87 and he said that that track was uh, the track he was talking about uh, was a tribute to chic okay so because the cure when people 
talk to them, they always say that we we don't really have a, any kind of influence from uh, you know black music, with the exception of Jimi Hendrix. Uh, they don't really they, they have no no soul kind of influence uh, on their music. A lot of these post punk bands, I love post punk, but a lot of these post punk bands don't really uh, think they don't really think they have uh, you know any kind of of uh, of soul music influence on them which is of course ridiculous because rock and roll is basically you know rock and roll is basically it comes from the blues so you can't you can't be a rock star or a rock artist without ha without having some debt to to uh, to R&B or whatever but anyway I, I just you know I just mentioned that story because you know, imagine the, the the reach of someone like like Chic. You know that even someone, some band like The Cure, they actually, you know, you wouldn't imagine that someone like The Cure would actually be listening to Chic. But you know, go figure. Yeah, and it, and it goes the other way around as well. I mean, now Rogers and Bernard Edwards didn't just you know come up listening to nothing but black music. You know, they listened to rock, they listened to pop, they listened to jazz. They listen to country music. I mean, you can hear that in Niles playing and in and in their songwriting and production. You know, they they their ears and their hearts were wide open to all sorts of pop music, and uh, and they were very aware of it. And that's why they were able to work with the vast, you know, varied amount of artists that they that they worked with. I mean, now Rogers worked with Al Jarreau. You work with David Bowie. You work with so many people, you know, across, uh, you know, Philip Bailey of Earth, Wind, Fire. It was, it was just, you know, nothing that he couldn't do. And of course, Madonna. So, you know, I just think that the borders, the, the, the perceived borders when it comes to music are pretty um, shallow. I mean, you know, whether somebody knows it or not, there is a, a lot of cross-pollination in what constitutes any piece of music and, 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 you know, how many elements of inspiration were there. Um, you know, a group can say, no, I didn't grow up listening to Rick James or whatever, you know, I listened to the three o'clock and Lush and, and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, you know, all that music is informed by a lot of different things, whether they know it or not. And the specific Chic collection that I was speaking of was the 1991, The Best of Chic, Dance, Dance, Dance. And then it had a second volume just called The Best of Chic, Volume 2, that came out in 1992. Because there had been a couple of other uh, Chic collections before that. I don't think they even had liner notes in any of those. So those ones that I'm speaking of were probably the first to have liner notes. And they were very poor. Very poorly yeah. done, you know, just very or just very lazily done. Very no effort, no, you know, and 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 to and to everybody at that time, I don't want to know if I should use the word credit, but that's just kind of the way they were done. It's like, hey, can you give me five hundred words about you know about the band cheek, right? You know, write something for us, and give you a couple hundred dollars, and you know, and you know. For a lot of writers, you know, that little extra money was cool. It's like, yeah, sure, I'd be, be glad to do it, you know, and they just dash it off in an afternoon or a day or two. And uh, and it's just something they did on the side. Whereas I consider myself from pretty early on, you know, I really wish I could do nothing but write liner notes, you know, liner note essays, 
you know, all day, every day, you know, just interviewing people, going deep, finding folks and, and getting the stories of uh, these songs and these incredible careers while the people are still here. Because for me, the bonus uh, wasn't just about, you know, some more money coming into my bank account. It was with every project that I worked on, it gave me an opportunity to go knock on somebody's door, ring somebody's phone and uh, make a new friend, you know, tell them I wanted to tell their story from their point of view, um, include them in the process of documenting their own history and all of that. And it's just something that I feel very, very um, kind of like it's a personal mission of mine. And I've been blessed to be able to do it quite often. And uh, in the process, I've made a lot of wonderful friends. And on the sad side, a lot of them pass away because they're at that age. So, um, it, but, you know, that happy part of it is I'm so glad that I did reach out to them and I did get their stories. Yeah. And, and speaking of, you know, of the projects you, you did and, and the great people you, you, you got a chance to talk to and work with, you've worked on projects, you know, involving all kinds of, of artists across all music genres from Lionel Richie to, to the band Chicago, to Tony Hathaway, to Jesse Johnson of the time, to Ray Parker Jr. It's, you know, I just can't wrap my head around, around these names. But <laughs> <laughs> did you ever feel starstruck when meeting some of these people? Almost every single one of them. Almost every single one of them. I'm a musician. I'm a music fan. I'm a record collector. When I was a kid, I would take one or two buses to different parts of town and, and, you know, go through used record bins and, and buy albums by the box and, uh, and bring them home and, and listen to them and look at all the credits and whatever the liner notes were, you know, I'm a total music nut. And, and a lot of people that, you know, got assignments in the early days to do liner notes, you know, they were in some cases full on music journalists, but a lot of times they were just music fans so, yeah, when I get certain projects, I am, like I said, one of the best things about the project that's priceless beyond the little bit of money that goes to my bank is that I got to talk to all the members of the average white band. I got to talk to Arif Martin and, and, and so many other people that were involved in the making of Donny Hathaway's albums. You know, all the great musicians that, that played with him, many of whom are, are no longer here. And some of them are still here. Um, Chicago, you know, when I asked Rhino, you know, Rhino Records put out a press release saying that, you know, they had acquired uh, licensing rights to the Chicago catalog. I went straight. I sent an email and I said, hey, whenever you guys get around to the album Hot Streets, I would really love to do that project. I, you know, I know a lot of hardcore Chicago fans might not like that album. It's the first album without Terry Kath or whatever, but I really like that record and I would love to do it. And because I'd done so much work for Rhino by that time, they said, Scott, not only are we going to give you Hot Streets to do, we're going to let you do Chicago 10 and 11, as well as 16 and 17. And plus, you know, when we do a five CD box set, we're going to let you do the essay that covers from, you know, one 
from the, the second half of their career, you know, and it was it was beautiful to be able to talk to uh, just about everybody. Um, they didn't want me to involve Peter Cetera because he was estranged from the band at that time. I still reached out to him and had a private conversation. None of it went into the liner notes, but you know, I just wanted to do that and and let him know what I was doing. And he was very respectful about that. And he also said, no, I will not give you a proper interview because, you know, that's not, you know, what we're doing at this point. They are Chicago and I am me doing me. But, you know, uh, I got to talk to Ames and Walter and Robert and Jason and Danny Serafini. I mean, you know, I got to talk to just about everybody else. And through me working with Chicago on their records, I got to do something else because Walt had started Chicago Records, a very, very, very short-lived record label. But while they were around, they were doing something on jazz saxophonist John Clemmer, and they asked me to write the piece for it, which meant I got to spend four crazy in the middle of the night hours interviewing John Clemmer on the phone, which was also uh, uh, just a milestone. It was great for me. My father loved John Clemmer. So through him, I learned to love John Clemmer. He's a very eccentric dude, but I had a great interview with him. And there are not that many people that can say they interviewed John Clemmer. So this is how, this is just, I guess I just say all of that to say that illustrates the the non-importance or kind of the shallowness of 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 music borderlines and genres and categories and and that sort of thing and how when you do really good work you never know where your next project is going to come from and what it's going to be you know uh, it's, it's been it's been a beautiful journey for me and and things like that uh, that happened with Chicago and then going from Chicago to John Clemmer, they happened to me all the time. Yeah, that's why I actually started this, uh, you know, this show a year ago because I wanted to do something similar, you know, with, with, uh, with the things, you know, I admire and the people I admire because I never, and I honestly mean that it's not, it's not something I just say, I never, you know, interview someone whose work I don't admire because it's, you know, just every single person I interviewed on this show since I started it last year was someone whose work I either admired or, or, or loved or even adored. So just getting a chance to have these conversations, you know, like the conversation we are having is just, uh, I'm just hoping to, you know, build this kind of audio archive of, of these great conversations like you know like an, an audio equivalent of these liner notes you know because uh, you know I try to talk about the things that I love movies music books and all these things and and you know like you said sometimes I interview someone and that someone leads me to another you know artist uh, that I, I never planned to have the opportunity to to talk to like you, like when I was, you know, trying to reach her Powell to talk about Bobby Rush, I actually came across your work and here we are. So, yeah, it's 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 a beautiful thing, you know, the, this kind of of, uh, of of trying to document, you know, the, the, the work and the history of of uh, 
of fascinating people and, uh, and and trying to keep the memory alive, basically. Yeah, uh, I want to share something with you, though. When I worked at Urban Network magazine from the late 80s into the, uh, you know, into the current millennium, like about 2004, 2005, uh, particularly in the first 16 years, we were a weekly magazine and I had to write the cover stories for about 95% of, of anybody that went on the cover of the magazine. It, was, it became my job as music editor to handle that. And I have to tell you that there were many times that I had to write about artists or acts or whatever that uh, I wasn't particularly fond of. So I had to, but what I found during that process, what I learned during that process is that sometimes even when you don't like or care for someone's music or you can think of 10 other artists that are a hundred times better, you can sometimes still end up making a really good connection with the person. Uh, maybe not so much the artist, but the person. And, you know, my job at Urban Network was to try to make whoever was put on the cover look as good as possible. I looked at myself during those time periods as a mediator between the artist and the, the music public. And so I was very humble and I just, you know, considered myself serving that artist, whatever their vibe was, just helping to get it across. And I mean, I, I had some really, really tough times. And there were a couple where I just wouldn't even put my name on the story because I was embarrassed that we were putting them on the cover of the magazine. They're so undeserving. But um, in some of those cases, I still found that people could be funny, they could be charming, they could be very intelligent. Uh, uh, they could be very creative in their own way. I just didn't care for their music. So it, it taught me to not be prejudiced against that um, wasn't necessarily my cup of tea. I still had to find a way as a writer to get their story across to the people. And that helped me tremendously in writing liner notes. It's all about telling the story. I mean, I've even written bios for people that have nothing to do with music. I've written bios for people that are photographers, that are business people that started certain kinds of businesses, all sorts of different things. People just like my writing style and they like the way that I go, you know, in depth with people, to try to help them tell their stories. So um, I, that's, that's what I do. And, and learning how to interview people that weren't necessarily big whoops for me uh, was, was an important part of that. Yeah, yeah, I get that, definitely. And, you know, speaking of, of, of the idea of, you know, speaking to fascinating people and trying to do document their history, your work as a, as a music journalist and as a historian as well, and someone who wrote more basically hundreds of, of, of uh, liner note essays, in this age of, of streaming, you know, and basically disposable content and general disinterest, you know, in the history of things by younger pe people, what do you think is the future of 
documenting the history and work of amazing musicians who are slowly being forgotten, although their contributions are, are groundbreaking. You know, what is the future for that? You know, I, I, I try to look at things as cyclical. So I think right now we're in a time period where there are young people or business people that feel like it's very easy to just not have liner notes. We don't have to document these things um, in a written sense. I mean, I think today a lot of people are doing liner notes in kind of one of the ways that you're doing it, which is through a podcast, you know, people are more visual now, you know, they, they, they want to look at things, they want to see things, they don't want to read as much. So you have all these people that are constantly, you know, filming uh, interviews with people and, uh, you know, and kind of documenting them that way, as opposed to it being in written form. And that's fine, because somebody will always be able to go back and transcribe those interviews if somebody wants to actually read them or if somebody wants to actually really do the work, which would be to transcribe those interviews and then pull in, pull them in from different places, you know, and amend them and add to them, you know, stuff that's not there. You know, I think there's always going to be a sense of, of uh, collecting the history of things. It's just that right now, we're in such a celebrity, look at me, me, me kind of thing that instead of writing about stuff, you know, people are telling their own stories. They're, you know, they're going on social media and they're filming themselves talking and, and showing you their house and their bathroom and their favorite place to eat. And, you know, they're kind of doing their own, you know, kind of showing you what their lives are like. And at some point, though, somebody's going to wish that there was a journalist to put their artistry into a context as opposed to them being this carnival show that everybody watches. They're going to want there to be a writer or several writers that, that tell their story. And um, so I think that that is going to come back around once the people that actually matter figure out that they want to be they want to be documented for history, just like all the greats that came before them. So at least that's what I hope, you know, um, that that's my hope. And say that it's a, a prediction of the future, but it's my general intuition that things are cyclical. And so the time for people being very well documented will come back around again. You know, following up on, on what you just said, uh, I, I noticed, I think, for like a, a year now, maybe a little bit more, that even Spotify uh, on, you know, on more famous records, uh, I remember I was listening to a couple of months ago, I was listening to uh, Roxy Music's Avalon record mm. on, uh, on Spotify. And uh, on the first track of the album, more than this, you had this option to have this kind of pop-up liner notes that while you're listening to the song, it tells you, you know, uh, tidbits and trivia about, you know, how it was recorded, uh, how it was written, the meaning of it, quotes from the band, 
it was just amazing you know it was like kind of this new uh you know version of you know do you remember the pop-up videos on vh1 i don't know if you remember that oh no i absolutely remember that absolutely. <laughs> yeah it was like this this version of pop-up video on spotify they do it on very very few songs that that uh, you know the, the the ones i came across were just you know maybe i don't know 10 records or something but i think maybe that's uh, that's also another you know new way for for the future maybe yeah i mean absolutely that that's something that's being done uh, i think it's it's like mcdonald's you know it's kind of a fast food way of of getting tidbits and uh you know little certain pieces of information out there and to your point of what you just said they're only doing them on major albums like probably Stevie Wonder's albums or Roxy Music's albums or the Beatles albums or whatever, you know, stuff where the information about those songs is probably pretty easy to gather and, uh, and kind of uh, art <laughs> into, you know, little tidbits for people to digest. Uh, and again, that's fine. We're living in a time period where people have short attention spans and, and their interest levels in certain things are not that deep. Um, some information is better than no information, but it's a drag that it's only being done for major records because, you know, I mean, I'm sure there are people that would love to know details about, you know, average white band songs or Eddie Harris songs or, you know, Bobby Rush songs, you know, there's people out there that would want to know uh, in depth things about that. And, you know, so sometimes maybe the liner notes get skipped over and you just go straight to Herb Powell's book about Bobby Rush, if you're really into Bobby, you know, um, maybe if somebody does a career encompassing anthology on Bobby Rush, obviously there will be some liner note essay in there and hopefully it's very well researched and and uh, they actually talk to Bobby and talk to his producers or his engineers or his sidemen or family members, somebody, you know, because it's not just about tidbits. It's about really trying to get a sense of who this person is, what sparked their creativity, what their career hurdles were, and what it is that makes what they do singular from other people that do things kind of like them, but this is what makes Bobby's music unique. You know, those are the things that you really look for in liner notes, uh, especially when you're talking about an, an album or a project, because a Bobby Rush book is going to talk about his life. Liner note essay for each one of his albums would give you a whole nother perspective, song by song, album by album, about, you know, what he wrote and why he wrote it and why he sang it the way he sang it and why he was on that record label as opposed to the one he was on before. You know, it's, it's really, you know, it just, the opportunities for that kind of documentation are, are just, you know, limitless. And, uh, and I hope that there'll always be a place for liner note essays in music projects. They're just doing it basically, the, these pop-up tidbits for major records I wish they would do it more, you know. Uh, of course, this is wishful thinking because I'm a huge fan of Jimmy Reed, 
You know, mm. so if anyone remembers him from from my generation, I don't think anyone from my generation, very few people of my generation even know who he is. And right. just, you know, fascinated with his music and, you know, the, the, the amount of instruments he played and the range of, of you know, his writing. And I can't really find any information, you know, on Jimmy Reed. But there are artists, uh, as, as you said, you know, m- many of them are no longer with us or are just, you know, getting on in years and it's not being covered. So my hope personally is in people like you actually are still passionate about all kinds of music and uh, especially maybe uh, music that isn't getting the attention uh like you know like classic soul music and classic you know jazz and classic blues uh stuff like that but anyway i don't want to take any more of your time i just uh i just want to ask you uh well, well, before what... before you before you ask my last your last question i just wanted to chime in about jimmy reed he was a fascinating person but jimmy reed came out in a time of popular music you know as a blues artist when they certainly were not doing you know, liner notes, you know, very often, and especially for blues artists, you know, I mean, they were happy to have a record deal and to have their songs on jukeboxes and to, and for that stuff to get out there. And they never imagined probably in a million years that in t- 2022, somebody would care about who they are or whatever. They were trying to make a living, you know, doing what they love to do. You know, Jimmy Reed loved playing his harmonicas, guitar, singing, writing songs, you know, going into a studio and then, you know, traveling and, and sharing them with people. And they they weren't thinking that there were going to be CDs and compilations and, you know, people studiously wanting to know about his life, you know? So that was kind of a different blissful era of, of, pop slash blues music, you know, because at that time, you know, blues and rhythm and blues was popular music. It was all over the places, all over the radios, all over the jukeboxes and everything. And people were generally just more concerned about, hey, what's that new record? I really like that. Who sings it? Jimmy Reed. Okay, yeah, I'm going to go and get that. You know, it's just more of an identity purpose of who is that artist that's singing that song that I like? And they hadn't gotten to the point of, wow, Jimmy Reed has put out several albums and I really like them. I want, I want to know more about him, you know, and he died very early. So um, he kind of just falls into an interesting crack uh, of, of why there's not that much information out there about him. And the last thing I'll share is that a lot of blues artists and a lot of artists in general don't really want you to know a lot about them. Sometimes they just want the music to speak for itself, you know. They get real leery when people want to find out about their family or their parents or where they grew up or whatever. You know, it's like they're like, you know, I'm just a man making a living playing this music and I like it. And that's really all you need to know. And sometimes that's enough, you know, just listen to their music and and you can use your imagination and and come up with who you think Jimmy Reed was as a person. I'm sorry, I just wanted to interject that because, again, I've interviewed so many people and and sometimes that was, uh, you know, a basic attitude as well. You know, I'll share with you certain things, but, you know, you don't really need to know a whole lot about me. You know, just, just listen to my music. I've heard that on more than one occasion. 
especially from people that were blessed to live a long time, but came from the same era as Jimmy Reed. Yeah, thank you for that. And, uh, you know, I'm, uh, I'm fascinated with the, with the background of some, some of these, you know, amazing musicians, but I'm also really, really, you know, f- freaky interested in, in the craft, you know, what they did as well, because just the more I know about the technology available to them at the time, you know, which is basically nil, you know, they had no, they didn't have any good mics, especially the older blues records. Everything was live and almost no production to speak of. And the quality of these, you know, records and especially uh, Jimmy Reed, you know, technically, of course, the records aren't that amazing by today's standards, but just the romanticism, you know, of his music, the the beauty of his music is just uh, on a very, you know, innocent kind of level, but also very passionate level. So I understand exactly what you're saying about not uh, some of these artists not wanting to share, you know, everything about their their family and background, but just knowing about, you know, what drove them and, and, and uh, and you know the craft that went into these records i don't i think a lot of people don't really appreciate because we are so jaded with technology now and you can make a record on your iphone or so the people don't know you know that the the the, the output of these people especially the the the, the older you know the, the the classic jazz uh, jazz and blues records the things you are listening to, these amazing things you are listening to were recorded under horrible conditions most of the time. So that's why I'm so interested in, in, in these, uh, you know, kind of historical things. But as you said, yeah. of course, sometimes it's not possible to get that info. Yeah. And, you know, and you just have to respect the fact of what you just said, the fact that they had so much passion about what they did. They, they, they made gold out of nothing. I mean, they had very little resources, you know, as far as the the way their stuff was recorded and what the quality of it was, but they had a lot of imagination. And you go from a blues artist just, you know, trying to get the sound of the rain or, or the sound of the train tracks or whatever by using their instruments and trying to, you know, give you you know, the, the evocative feeling, you know, along with the basic chords and the basic rhythm of how the track is supposed to song is supposed to go. You know, um, they had to really, really use their imaginations. And so, you know, it, it's, a, it's an axiom that goes back to the blues, but also goes to, you know, later in funk where they said, you know, funk really is creating something out of nothing. It's about your, it's about what you can create in the mind's eye with your own creativity and, and whatever you have around you, you know, a, bottle, a, a Coke bottle on the floor, some, some dirt on the, the floor or an old spring from the car out, outside, you know, it will make a sound that is unique. I mean, they were, they were truly just using the utmost create utmost creativity create music out of things that weren't even made to make music we can talk about this forever and uh, um we we have we have to do this again if uh, if if you can if you ever have the time but i just want to ask you uh before we go uh 
what are you working on now? Any, any? I know you're you're writing tons of wonderful articles, and I, I link to that, uh, you know, in the episode description. Uh, but any special projects you want to talk about? Um, currently, I have some really, really interesting projects that I finished that have not come out yet. Um, first and foremost is a 50th anniversary uh, box set around the event Watt Stacks, which happened in 1972 at the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum. I got to write my very first cultural essay for that project. And um, it really means a lot to me. Um, it's, I, there's another gentleman that wrote the musical part of the liner note essays for that project. I wrote, I got to write about the culture of black people in Los Angeles at that time and, and what that event was coinciding with socio-politically, you know, post-civil rights riots and where black people were heading at that point in time with, and trying to be more integrated into society as opposed to having their own neighborhoods and what good and bad came from that uh, and still weaving that through you know, the subject matters of some of the songs that were sung at that event. I'm very, very happy about that. I think that'll be coming out toward the end of the year on Stacks Records through Concord. I also just did a liner note essay for jazz trombonist Steve Teray. Uh, the album is called Generations. I had a really nice time doing that. Um, you know, again, getting into his personal history, and uh, the fact that he wants jazz music to be a continuum that uh, builds upon what happened in jazz in the past, but that takes the music forward. Um, I really enjoyed working on that. I got that project because Steve liked the work that I did on a project that came out last year by jazz saxophonist Kenny Garrett called Sounds of the Ancestors. Um, he liked that the essay that I wrote for that, that album won an NAACP award, uh, not my essay per se, but my essay was a part of that album, which won an NAACP award, image award for, you know, best jazz album. So I'm very proud to be affiliated with that. Um, I've also done liner note essays this year on reissues of BT Express's album, Do It Till You're Satisfied a very obscure Ohio players record called Tenderness that has been very much misunderstood because people will kind of look at it as another funk record, which it was not from the Ohio players. It was a soul record in a sixties style with, you know, some blues and some country and even a little bit of disco thrown in because that's what was kind of happening at the time. Um, I did a liner note essay for a reissue of the band Slaves album Showtime, which was their last great album that also featured Steve Arrington on lead vocals. And at the same time that I did the Slave reissue, I also did the liner note essay for Steve Arrington's third album as a solo artist, which was called Dancing in the Key of Life. And the very next one I'm working on and have not completed is... 40th anniversary for Michael McDonald's debut solo album, if that's what it takes. So I'm getting to do another pop soul record, and I'm very, very happy about that. It's going to be a 
SACD, you know, enhanced audio, very top quality uh, audio CD. And, uh, and we're going to do our very best um, to, to make that something for people that even if they have the old CDs or the old vinyl for that record, they're going to want this version of it. It's going to sound great. And it's going to be very well documented. And that one I did for a company called Icono Classic Records, for which I'm doing a lot of essays for them, by the way. Icono Classic Records is also the label that I did the Slave, the Steve Arrington, the BT Express, and the Ohio Players. And uh, I guess when, when you told me in the email that uh, you're very busy, you weren't kidding. <laughs> no, I'm very, very blessed that I've been very busy, especially during the pandemic, which was on the most depressing, not one of, it was the most depressing two years of my life for many, many reasons. Uh, luckily, I was, I was able to be working on things throughout those two years and uh, that helped keep me distracted. It helped keep money coming in. And, uh, you know, a lot of people, I could, you know, couldn't say that. There was a lot of folks that really suffered during that time period. I'm very thankful uh, and blessed that uh, I was able to work, be working on things that meant something to me during that time period. And really, Scott, thank you very much for, for uh, you know, being so generous with your time. This was just, uh, I guess you can tell this, for me, this was such an enjoyable conversation. I'm just so happy to be talking to, you know, someone who is truly passionate about music, who who just, you know, loves music for music's sake, you know, uh, and this was amazing. So thank you very much for, for your time. You are very welcome, Ahmed. I very much appreciate you uh, reaching out to me and wanting me to be a part of your, of your broadcast. And, um, you know, we can definitely do this again at a later time. And I hope that when you go back and kind of further research the things that I've written liner notes for that, uh, my my work as a liner notes writer introduces you to you know some other music that you might not have ever you know listened to um so it's kind of like coming in the back way right like instead of buying the record and then kind of discovering the liner notes if you go and get a project because i wrote the liner note essay for it hopefully we'll also introduce you to some amazing music that, that's what it's all about thank you so much I'd like to end this episode with a clip from the song Way Down Yonder in New Orleans performed by Connie Boswell and her band. Boswell is widely considered one of the greatest jazz female vocalists of all time and was a major influence on Ella Fitzgerald. Thanks for listening and please join me again for another episode of the Dark Fantastic Podcast. Yeah, where do you think I'm going when the wind starts blowing strong? Yeah, where do you think I'm going when the night starts growing long? I ain't going east, I ain't going west, 
Dark Fantastic Podcast. Ahmed Khalifa is a filmmaker and novelist. He is the writer-director of several short films and a feature, released on Netflix, and the author of a number of novels and short stories, including, Beware the Stranger, available on Amazon.